This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Coming up later in the show, my conversation with Kathleen Hale on her book, Slender Man, online obsession, mental illness, and the violent crime of two Midwestern girls. Now, this is a harrowing true story, page after page, of not only explicit detail, but also extraordinary in-depth research. It's difficult to comprehend how two 12-year-old girls attempt to murder their friend by stabbing her multiple times. But what's even more frightening was that they committed their crime under the influence of a figure born by the internet, the so-called Slender Man. The aftermath calls into question the American judicial system, the trials of adolescence, and how mental illness is treated. First, there's been so much happy talk recently about how we are dealing with climate change. But are we really tackling an urgent problem correctly? Robert Hunzinger says no. He's a frequent contributor to Life Elsewhere, he writes about climate change in various publications, including Counterpunch. Robert Hunzinger, welcome back to Life Elsewhere. Hi, Norman. Great to be with you again. I just got a text message this morning from a friend of mine who lives in a lovely little village not too far from the coast in the south of France. And he said, you're not going to believe, but we're having yet another heat wave. We're in triple digits. Then I was speaking to my family in the UK just a week or so ago, and they were saying, how do you put up with the temperatures you live in? We're in the upper 90s here. And finally, I spoke to friends of mine in Seattle, where I used to live, where nobody has air conditioning. And they were complaining about how stinking hot it was. So collectively, a lot of hot weather going on. Oh, oh also where I live in Florida, we're having, apparently, we're having record temperatures this year. Overall, the temperatures for Florida are going to be record-breaking. So my question to you is, what the hell's going on there, Robert? <laughs> well, we have a broken climate system. You know, um, in that regard, one of the things I wanted to do with you is I'd like to walk through the worldwide drought conditions and talk yes. about different areas of the world, what's happening today, real live time facts right yeah. now what's happening and i think people are going to be uh, their mouths are going to drop wide open as we go through this yeah. because you know you only get little snippets on the news and little sound bites oh it was 40c in northern england they're not used to that blah 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 that type of thing but it's difficult for people to get the full color and flavor of what's really going on. It's kind of like baseball scores. If the Tampa Bay Rays are playing the Marlins and the Marlins beat them nine to two, you go to yourself, well, yeah, the, the I mean, the Tampa Bay beats North Marlin nine to two. Tampa <laughs> Bay has better pitching. That's all you know. But if you're at the game, if you're at that game and you smell the hot dogs and the popcorn and you hear the smack of the ball hit a leather mitt and the whack of the ball as the bat hits it and the crowd get up and stream you get the color and the full dynamics of that game. Yeah. The scientists go to the games, okay? People do not have a full flavor and understanding of what this climate science is all about. They don't go to the games. The scientists go to Antarctica, 
They go to Greenland. They go to the bush up in uh, Siberia in these places, and they see it happening way ahead of time. They've been warning us for years. In that regard, April 6th of this year was the Global Warming Bastille Day. And what do I mean by that? I'm leading into following up on the question you asked me. That's the first time that you've had worldwide civil disobedience erupted by scientists in the 25 largest countries of the world. Yes. And what they did, their slogan was 1.5 C centigrade is dead, climate revolution now. So these scientists who go to the ball games have had it. In fact, they've turned in their season tickets. They don't even want to play that game anymore. They're now chaining themselves to fences. They chained themselves to the doorway of the J.P. Morgan Chase Bank building in downtown Los Angeles. Now, what do they want? They're demanding that Biden declare a climate emergency. Now, regarding this, there was an op-ed in The Guardian also on April the 6th. And the 6th is interesting because they wanted it to be on the 6th because they're, re they're reacting to the international climate IPCC report, sixth assessment that came out that said oh. how bad things are. Yes. And you heard Guterres, the chairman, talk to the world about, you know, <laughs> we're on a death sentence here. Yes. We are on a death sentence, by the way. The op-ed that they put in the Guardian said the following, earth breakdown much worse than most people realize survival of the planet is at stake. 275 scientists, the key ones like Michael Mann, here in the U.S., sent a letter to Biden. And they said, follow the science, stop the fossil fuels, and they want him to declare a climate national emergency. And here's what that means. This bill, Inflation Reduction Act, by the way, ain't going to do the job. First three people that said it was really great were the CEOs of Exxon, British Petroleum, and Shell. It thumbs up all the way. They love the bill. And as Bernie Sanders said on the floor of the Senate when they were talking about this, you know, we're already giving $15 billion a year in subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. Now we're going to give them several more billion between now and 2030 to kill us. That's what he said on the Senate floor. And it's true. And that's what this bill does. When Zelensky got a hold of the White House and he needed armament to fight, fight Russia, he didn't send some BB guns. He said howitzers. This is not a howitzer, this bill, Inflation Reduction Act. It's a BB gun. Here's something that's interesting about that. Well, I just want to stop you there for a moment, Robert, because I'm glad that you directed right into that, because I was, that was going to be on my list of things to answer, ask you. So thank you very much for going in that direction. The Economist has an article dated July 21st. So this was published just before they approved this new Inflation Reduction Act, correct? Here's what it says. American climate policy in tatters. Mansion single-handedly scuttled Biden's Build Back Better plans of $3.5 He did. This is not a New Deal FDR kind of a program at all. It's minuscule. FDR in the 1930s did what? He opened up the country's pocketbook and spent money, hard yes. dollars, things like highways, dams, infrastructure, public libraries, all kinds of things. We just don't do that anymore. These are tax incentives, tax credits. How in the hell can anyone think we're dumb enough to think that a bill that includes both giving billions to fossil fuel companies, as well as doing some tinker toy things with climate change makes sense? 
Now, Schumer's out there talking about it's the best thing since sliced bread. And he keeps saying this is the greatest climate bill ever. Well, against what versus what? We've never had one before. It could have been 10 times smaller to be the greatest. So he's not lying. Now, the reason the scientists want Biden to declare the climate national emergency, which we do have, is the following. If he were to do that, he would then have executive power to do the following. He can cancel oil drilling projects. He can compel construction of renewables. This is all under the provision of a climate national emergency. And the EPA would have strict authority to enforce the rules on lowering pollution standards for cars and power plants and all these other things. Yep. They're shooting up all of the emissions. Now, there's something else I want to talk about in this regard, and it has to do with James Hansen, who is the world's leading climate scientist. And he's a scientist who was the uh, director of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies for 30 years. He was there from 67 to 2013 as a participant. The, uh, the director of it in the final years. He's the one who also testified to Congress, the Senate in 1988. He said, for the first time we detected these um, greenhouse effect where we're changing the chemistry of the atmosphere. And I remember that because that's what converted me to start following science more than I'd ever done before in my life. And that's why I'm here today writing and studying the thing for over a decade. I've got mm -hmm. 300 articles out about this stuff. Here's what James Hansen said, a quote about the Inflation Reduction Act. It is consistent with the longstanding wishful thinking approach to climate policy. Ask each nation to try to reduce their emissions and hope that the global results will add up to a solution. And then ignore the blatant scientific data showing that this approach is not working and will not work. Now, I wanna talk a little bit before we go to the worldwide drought, your, your, your principal question talk a little bit about CO2, this carbon dioxide we're putting in the atmosphere and what it can really do in the final analysis. Because when James Hansen did his doctorate and he, he, he worked with Carl Sagan on getting data on what was happening with Venus because he studied Venus's atmosphere. Let me ask you a question, Norman. Mercury is 36 million miles from the sun. Got that? Venus is 67 million miles from the sun, almost twice as far. Mm. Which planet's hotter? Ah, so one of your, I like this when you do this, one of your trick questions. So I'm guessing the one that's furthest away is hotter for, for whatever reason. You're, right. yeah, you're going to explain it to us. Yeah, yeah. Intuitively, you would say it's Mercury, would you? Because right, it's, yes. It's, yeah. Right? Okay, Mercury's temperature is 350 degrees Fahrenheit. They have a very uh, weird atmosphere. It has some oxygen, sodium, hydrogen, helium in it. 350 degrees, right? Venus, yep. which is twice as far from the sun, yeah. 900 degrees Fahrenheit. And this was something that, of course, James Hansen discovered. So if you took the SpaceX rocket ship and flew to Venus, before you landed, it would melt. Why is that? The climate is 97% CO2. Oh. 97%. And the other 3.5% is nitrogen. So it's a big blanket that holds in all the heat. None of it escapes. So, so that's the problem we've got, isn't it? So a few years ago on Venus, people were driving around in large pickup trucks. Is that what was going on? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so let's get on to, oh, but by the way, I have one request of your viewer, of your listeners. Um, yeah. And they can help out quite a bit here because James Hansen has a um, petition that he has sent to the EPA. And um, he's asking for people to sign on the petition. Ah. 
I'd like to send you a link to it. Send me the link or we'll put it up on our site. Yes. Please do, because then they, I just signed up to it. It took me one minute. Yes. But here's what it is. He has proposed, and he and several other scientists have proposed this, that the EPA put into use the Toxic Substances Control Act of 1976. That was passed in 1976 to get rid of um, CFCs or chlorofluorocarbons that were destroying the ozone ozone level in our atmosphere, if you recall that whole thing about the ozone hole. Yep. Now, keep in mind that ozone molecules, they're in the stratosphere 10 to 20 miles up, dispersed throughout 10 to 20 miles. What do they do? When the sun ultraviolet rays come and hit Earth, there are three types. There's UVA, UVB, UVC. UVC is the same as a welder's torch. We don't want that to hit the planet. Ozone molecules absorb UVC. If we didn't have them, gee, I wonder what would happen to the planet. With the welder's torch impact, we would burn up, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how critical that was. That's how close we came to destroying our planet. That's how close. And there were scientists like James Anderson out of Harvard and James Lovelock of the Gaia Theory uh, that, that made the difference and discovered this and brought it forth to the public because DuPont started making CFCs in the 1930s for refrigeration purposes. Eventually, it was for underarm deodorant and all these things. They did the same thing to the public that the fossil fuel companies are doing today. Denied, denied, denied that it was causing any problems with the ozone molecules. Well, James Anderson of Harvard put these instrumentations on airplane wings, and they went out and found out that, yeah, it was destroying the ozone. So if these scientists hadn't prevailed on this, we would not be talking today, I guarantee it. Now, James Anderson, a couple years ago, he's one of our most famous atmospheric scientists, was given an award at the University of Chicago for his science work. And he made a speech. And in that speech, this was two years ago, he said, we have five years to get our act together. It's going to be all over. And by that, what he meant was stop emitting CO2. We had five years to get our act together. We only got three more years, don't we? Let's go back to this petition, by the way. You know, let me just say this, Robert. I love talking to you, but it always seems to me that it, it, you scare the living day, daylights out of me. It's not funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know what to do. Um, so anyway, they eventually passed the Montreal Protocol, right? Now, yeah. keep in mind, uh, James Lovelock, by the way, who's the guy theory guy, he died yeah. June 26th at the age of 103. When he was 100, I wrote an article about him called it 100, Gaia faces its biggest challenges. He also gave an interview to the BBC where he said something very similar to what James Anderson said. So the scientists of the world go to the ball game. They see what's happening. They don't just see a score. They don't just see 40C flooding here, you know, drought here. They actually yeah. see this stuff and they've had it. This petition that Hansen wants you, your listeners to sign onto and help is a petition to phase out greenhouse gas pollution to restore a stable and healthy climate. And several scientists have put this together. They sent it to the EPA. The EPA, by law, must respond to the petition by September 14th, within one month. Yeah. They must respond to it. So that's one more thing that scientists are doing that we don't hear about that's a hell of a lot better than this um, anti-inflation, whatever it is, bill reduction act. That and the fact that the scientists are also putting pressure on Biden to declare a climate emergency and use executive powers. These two things could do a lot more than that bill will ever do. Now let's go to the world and look at it here. 
because you're the one that talked about your friends trapped in heat. And what we've got, I think the world's coming down to major water wars, by the way. And you're going to see that as I talk about what's going on real time, real facts around the planet. Okay. We're trapped in heat. According to NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the Earth now is trapping twice the amount of heat that it did since 2005. Yeah, twice the amount. This is the same problem that Venus ran into a long time ago, isn't it? I mean, I'm being a little facetious. Yeah, 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 yeah. For NASA purposes, this is unprecedented. It's an increase that gives us a climate crisis that's entirely alarming. So the planet has become a heat machine. Mm. According to SPI, Global Drought Monitor, which is the world monitor, you now have severe drought worldwide. So let's look at the real-time data. Europe. They're experiencing the most intense drought in 250 years. University of Cambridge did a study of long-term drying trend, and it rapidly started accelerating and intensifying since 2015. Mm. Once again, going back to trapping heat twice as fast as we have over the last 50, 60, 70 years, whatever it may be. The Po Valley, Po River Valley, Italy, Northern Italy, are you familiar with it? Yes, I, but very much so, yes. Yeah. Probably been there. Um, yeah. It's an agriculture area. It's a major, they have 100 towns that have cut the water use because the Po River Valley water flow is so low because of the drought. 100 towns. Now, this is as of July. They told them, cut your water use. The Rhine River. You're familiar with the Rhine River, I know. Yep. Yep. Did you ever take one of those excursions on the Rhine River? I have not, but it's, it's on my list of things to do, yes. Yeah. Well, don't go, don't go in the next month. <laughs> there's, no, there's no water. <laughs> Here's the problem. This is Europe's most important waterway by far, by yeah. far. Major, connects all the major megaports, Antwerp and mm. Switzerland, Germany, all of them. Commerce, industry. As of Sunday, this last Sunday, the key shipping lanes are down to 49 centimeters depth of water, which is 19 inches, Norman. 19 inches. The Rhine River. Wow. So what they've got now is that the um, uh, transports that could carry 6,000 tons of coal and things like that yeah. in the run, they're down to carrying 800 tons, not 6,000. And they may have to stop entirely. Now, the Rhine River has a seasonal low point every year, but that, that doesn't hit until October, November. So this is happening two months ahead of the normal seasonal low point. Yes. It's highly probable that all traffic on the Rhine could be stopped within the next few weeks. So once again, Robert, things are speeding up at a record pace. Robert, I'm unfortunately, because of our time considerations, I have to say thank you so very much. You always, you always give us lots and lots of information, but as I said earlier, you always make me just go, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Hunziker has been my guest. He writes for a number of different magazines and whatever. You can find a lot of his writing in Counterpunch, and I highly recommend that you go to Counterpunch. We have the link up on our site for Counterpunch as well. Robert Hunziker, thank you so much once again for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Thank you, Norman, so much for this kind of exposure. Really appreciate it. Still to come, my conversation with Kathleen Hale on her full account of an horrendous stabbing by two teenage girls, a narrative of mental illness, the American judicial system, 
and the power of the internet. The book, Slender Man, Online Obsession, Mental Illness, and the Violent Crime of Two Midwestern Girls. You are listening to Life Elsewhere with Norman B. You can learn more about this program at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Kathleen Hale is my guest, and she's written the book that I have, well, I'm going to be very honest about this and tell you, I have not put it down since since it was first delivered to me. The book is titled Slender Man, Online Obsession, Mental Illness, and the Violent Crime of Two Midwestern Girls. Kathleen Hale, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much for having me. I got this book a couple of weeks back, I, maybe maybe a month ago, I think. And I and I had it in my hand and wherever I went, I was reading it. And then after I read it, I kept picking it up again to sort of go back. So I knew I was going to be having a chat with you. And I just wanted to make sure that I got all the details. And But it was so fascinating that I just wanted to keep on going back and, and just sort of make sure I, I understood everything. Having said that, I want you to tell my listeners, if you wouldn't mind, just a little bit about slender man not the whole story of the book but slender man totally you mean like the origin of slender man as a character yes yes okay so slender man is a character who first emerged in 2009 as part of a photoshop contest in the user forums of a horror fandom uh site and there was this there was this contest to see who could do the best you know photoshopping of an image to make it spooky and the winning images were of a figure in the background of one photo it was a playground the other photo it was a trail and there are kids in the foreground playing and they're completely oblivious to the fact that watching them from a distance is this tall lanky faceless figure in uh in a men's suit and that's that's when slender man was born and um basically what ended up happening is on uh horror fan websites people started writing stories about slender man they were inspired by this image of him to 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 loop him into their horror stories and there's one site in particular called creepypasta.com where horror fans can write fan fiction about characters that have been sort of like uh, crowdsourced or, or crowd created and so he started popping up in these stories and people uh, were excited to write Slender Man lore. Um, the thing that is often misunderstood about Slender Man is he's a very PG-13 rated character mm -hmm. uh these horror fan websites these creative writing websites a lot of the stories are clearly written by children and they're very tame and uh he is one of probably the in my opinion the most vanilla characters on these on these sites um, and his powers include the ability to uh, control people's minds and get them to do things for him 
So for most of us, Kathleen, whether we were teenagers, preteens or adults, it wasn't something to really take very seriously. It was obviously fiction. It was obviously just fantasy and, and creepypasta, the site that you mentioned, was very obvious in that it, that it wasn't meant to be taken seriously. Having said that, there were two young ladies who were what, 10, I think, at the time, and then 11, and then going up to 30, who did take this seriously. And these are two of the characters in your book. And this is a true story. And I think a lot of people may remember that there was this horrific, horrific story about these two young ladies in Wisconsin who murder their friend. Um, well, they don't actually murder her, but they intend to murder her. So can you pick it up from there just a little bit, just give us a little overview of, of the sort of background to the story of your book? Sure. So when Morgan Geyser was 11 years old, she had already been having hallucinations, um, visual and auditory hallucinations since the age of three. And one of her hallucinations when she was much younger, when she was around five, was that she looked in the mirror and she saw a tall figure standing behind her. And that was a scary one. Most of her hallucinations were friendly. So when her neighbor, Anissa Wire, uh, introduced her to the horror website Creepypasta, Morgan came across Slender Man and thought, I've seen him before. Yeah. That's, that's the figure I saw in the mirror. And together they concocted this delusion that he was following them and that he would kill them and their families unless they sacrificed a human being in his honor yes the scariest part about this is that these two young ladies took this so seriously and nobody understood even after they were arrested with this attempted murder just really how seriously they took this situation. But let's let's talk about Morgan for a moment, because Morgan, in some respects, is the central character. Absolutely. In yeah. in in my book, she's the central central character because she and her family were the ones who agreed to speak with me. So her yes. story is the is the one that is most deeply understood by me and yeah. um and and so with the other characters with anisa wire and their victim peyton leitner i was relying on transcripts and many many court documents and you know they have their own arcs in the book and i think that they have these very strong coming of age stories but morgan is the one that i spoke to her parents were the, and grandparents were the ones that i spoke to her lawyers and so the, you know, page one of the book starts with Morgan at the age of three and, and we go right. from there. Yes. I shouldn't make a note for my listeners and let them know that there is so much detail in your book. I mean, you just go, the research that you, you did for this book must be extraordinary. But let's just go back to the beginning of the book and about Morgan. And what you explain to us is that Morgan's father had some... And I'm not sure what the correct way to say this is, but he had some mental issues. He, he, he maybe, maybe you can explain it better than I can because I don't want to misinterpret. Oh, so um, Morgan's father has schizophrenia, and he has mental illnesses that are related to schizophrenia. Lots of people with schizophrenia also have depression and anxiety, and so those are things that he that he deals with on a daily basis. 
Now, Morgan, at the age of 11, 12, when this incident happens, did not know that her father had this this syndrome or symptom. His wife did, he did, and some people around him did. But the fact that she didn't, that Morgan didn't, is a big part of the story. It's a big part of Morgan's story, and it's an even bigger part when it comes to the the, the huge tragedy of this story is that these two young ladies were charged as adults. These were pubescent teens. These were they weren't even teens when they were really sort of concocting this story. And they were both of them, both were really at somewhat a little immature for their age as as you paint the story. So talk to me about about just how these two young ladies got together and they started to fixate on the slender man idea. Because as you paint it in the book, Kathleen, it's just so I mean it's it's riveting. I, I mean I feel like I'm I'm kind of like following them around as you tell the story. Just give us a little insight into how they really sort of grasped onto this image of Slender Man. Yeah, so Anissa Wire and Morgan Geyser lived in the same condominium complex. And Anissa had just switched school districts. So she was new as a sixth grader in Morgan's sixth grade class. And they waited at the bus stop together. And Anissa had some issues going on at home. She had a little bit of depression and um, she was a bully uh and she she started out as morgan's bully um and what ended up happening is over time you know she went from punching morgan in the arm to realizing that they both liked horror stories which in this you know very quaint american town waukesha is the kind of thing that could set a little girl apart from her peers and they bonded over that non-conformity and they would trade stories on the bus and um they began reading creepypasta together and anisa to my knowledge had never really had a strong female friendship before then but morgan already had a best friend named peyton they had been best friends since fourth grade and so there was a little bit of a barrier in terms of becoming closer to Morgan because Morgan already had a best friendship. And so their relationship for a very long time um, and to a large extent was limited to bus rides. Um, And at school, Anissa would more or less ignore Morgan because Morgan was very unpopular. And Anissa would, when other kids were looking at school, often bully Morgan and, and Peyton. Um, but nevertheless, there was a real electricity to, to their secret friendship because they liked some of the same things that other people didn't like. And they would communicate a lot, uh, you know, from, from their bedrooms across the condo complex. It was sort of a modern uh, telephone can sort of situation yeah. um, yes. on, on, online. And they would talk that way. We should just point out to our listeners that you grew up, I believe you say, about 30 miles from where this happened in Wisconsin. This is I've traveled a lot in America, but one place I've not been to is Wisconsin for some reason. I have, I, maybe I've had no reason to go there, but you paint 
this this picture of the town uh, and and the and the area that they grew up in is very ordinary. It's a very normal middle class stroke working class environments and it's so strangely normal <laughs> i mean that sounds an oxymoron there doesn't it but it is then this terrible thing happens oh i should another thing i should point out is that peyton throughout the book her nickname or a pet name was was bella so throughout the book she's known as bella then this this awful day arrives. They plan this this to 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 murder her, to murder Bella, and the trouble that they go to, and the sort of the anxiety that's that's involved. And as you lead up to it, it's like, oh my goodness! It's it really does read like a thriller. Unfortunately, it's true. There's so much to take in here, Kathleen, because then we get to the part that. It's just, it's so hard to read when these two young ladies, I mean, they don't get away, of course. I mean, they wander off and they do silly things like go to a, a, a Walmart, I think it is, and, and um, steal something. They just do silly things. I mean, really kind of like, oh, my goodness. It's almost like they didn't know what they were doing. Give me just a little brief part of that, a part that's just sort of the aftermath of the actual attack. And it's not a murder, but a lot of people to this day still think that Bella was murdered. You yes, know? it's true. Yeah, it's true. And one of the things that that became contentious in this case once it reached court was this idea of was it premeditated? Because yeah. if it were premeditated, then they should be prosecuted as adults at the age of 12. And the prosecutors on the case continually came in and were saying they had planned this with military precision, I think was one of the phrases that they used. Um, and this was an adult crime because they put so much time into planning it. Well, what they planned to do after committing this act of violence was walk 300 miles north without a compass, without a phone, without a physical map, without a tent, without any any means of surviving en route to their destination in the Nicolay National Forest of Wisconsin. And so basically after stabbing Bella, they they wandered off and they they wandered north and then they wandered a few miles in the wrong direction. And along the way they stopped at um, they stopped at Walmart so that Morgan could wash the blood off her hands. They stopped at a Steinhoffel's, which is a <laughs> is a Wisconsin furniture store uh, with the largest number one mattress retailer, I think yeah. is there. And they were giving away lemonade and cookies in yes. the in the lobby. So they stopped and they had some of that. And they began to bicker because, you know, it was not as easy as they thought it would be right. to to walk 300 miles without any directions. And they kind of kept waiting for Slenderman to appear to save them or to do something. And reality just like slowly, gradually set in as they got farther and farther away, more and more tired, more and more thirsty. Uh, and he was nowhere to be found. They believed that there was a mansion, that Slenderman had a mansion in the forest. They had no idea about really about how they were going to do this, what they were going to do. I mean, all they knew is that they were going to, uh, they were going to murder Bella, which they didn't, as it turns out. So then let's, because there's so much, then let's now turn to when they're arrested and they're in custody. 
Morgan is interviewed by one group of detectives, but one in particular, and Anissa is interviewed by another set of detectives. And it seems to me, and, and you pointed out in the book, that Morgan's interrogation is absolutely horrific. She clearly has issues. She has body tics. She has she has this ability to just to stare off into the distance because she is a troubled young lady. She does have problems, but this was not taken into consideration at the time. The detective that's interviewing her thinks she's being belligerent, thinks she's just being sassy, and this is anything but what she was doing. She had no clue that how she was coming across. Again, I'd like you to sort of pad that out a little bit for us. Yeah, sure. So unfortunately, um, Morgan was paired with a detective named Detective Thomas Casey. Yeah. Um, and Anissa was paired, luckily for her, with a detective named Michelle Trussoni, who was much more compassionate yes. and, um, and understanding. Um, but one thing that that where Trusoni like may have clearly dropped the ball or, or I mean, they both did, the whole department did was about five minutes into Anissa's interview. She warned detective Trusoni that Morgan hears voices and uh, they proceeded to interrogate Morgan for about five hours straight, uh, straight yeah. um, without, without taking that into consideration at all. And, and detective Thomas Casey really railroaded her and went after her in in such a <laughs> aggressive way. He really treated her like she was a hardened criminal. Yes. Um, and not a child. And um, yeah, they just they they used the full extent of the law to come down on these two girls. They interviewed, they read them their Miranda rights, which as we know are very difficult for even adults to understand. Um, they did not offer them a lawyer, they did not offer to let them call their parents because in Wisconsin children can be interrogated without a parent present and no lawyer will be provided to them unless they specifically ask for one so unless they think of it on their own um so anyway so these girls gave everything away they gave very lengthy confessions and Morgan was really hung out to dry and the thing that was shocking was that detective Casey didn't stop there he proceeded to uh, testify against Morgan several times um, and painted her as a remorseless psychopath uh, rather than as somebody who had by then diagnosed early onset childhood schizophrenia. You would think that someone in his shoes, okay, fine, you thought that this was a super predator yes. uh, in, in your interrogation room, but after she received her diagnosis, you would think that perhaps he would have pulled back a little bit um, or tempered his testimony to account for the fact that she was sick. And he didn't. He just continued to go after her as hard as he could uh, because he believed he, he believed that she should be sent to prison um, yeah. for 65 years. This is where it gets. I mean, it's already troubling, but this is where it gets really, really difficult to read. That the interview series that you talk about with both of the girls, but then we have the judge and and the legal system and the psychiatrists that interview her. The whole this like it's it's never ending. It's like it, it's it's like 
the floodgates open and just it, it one horrible thing after another just keeps on happening and I, I i'm sure like most people and the way you write the book it says to me that you you felt like i did so awful for these young ladies i mean just specifically morgan because she really did not know what was going on and i think as you say at the end of the book maybe even today she still doesn't really quite comprehend she understands some of it but let's just stop for a moment and remind my listeners i'm talking to kathleen hale her book is oh gosh this is such a great read slender man online obsession mental illness and the violent crime of two midwestern girls so they've been arrested they haven't been charged yet oh had they no but i think it takes it takes like a couple of weeks doesn't it before they're actually charged it takes a couple of days yeah a couple of days yeah um but the interrogation is horrible for both of them. The situation is horrible, of course, for Peyton, a.k.a. Bella and her parents and all the parents. And the parents play really important parts in this story. And then, of course, are the attorneys that represent both of the girls. In particular, this is where another character comes in who's fascinating. Morgan's attorney, Tony Cotton. Can you just give us a little insight into Tony Cotton? Tony Cotton is a, a fascinating person. Um, he so Tony was born and raised in Waukesha, where the where the crime took place. And his mother went to law school when he was a when he was a kid. When she, and when she had three children, and she would go to the University of Madison. She would drive there early in the morning, come home in time to pick him up from from school, and then she and her three children would do their homework together at the table. And Tony was expected to loan out his church clothes when her younger clients went to court. And this really made a huge impression on him. And he ended up going to Marquette Law, which is in um, Milwaukee. And when he graduated, he went into business with his mother and they became, it became a family business. And when I met them, uh, her ex-husband, Tony's former stepdad had an office in their law offices and Tony's dad's wife, his stepmom worked the front desk. So it was this very fascinating sort of modern family business where everybody was working together um, on behalf of, of, you know, people who'd been convicted of some pretty heavy crimes. Um, they were criminal defense attorneys. And when Tony got the call about this case, he was on a pontoon boat celebrating a very old friend's bachelor party. And Tony's the kind of person who has a lot of trouble relaxing. He gets up at 5.30 a.m. He sprints on his treadmill to, to kid rock songs. Yes. And so he got this call on the pontoon boat and he told his, his buddy, like, turn the boat around. I have to go to the office. And this, that was on a Sunday. So he was passionate about this case from the very beginning. And, um, and he took it on and he did everything he could to get Morgan's case pushed into uh, juvenile court. He made some very, very creative motions to that end and nothing that he did worked. Um, and the judge on this case ruled with the prosecution at almost every single turn. And I was very, I was 
Tony made such an impression on me because he exhibited that very classic Midwestern stoicism. He and his mom did. They took on a lot of clients, a lot of sad stories. And Tony seemed unfazed by decisions that that made me and a lot of people in the audience, I think, want to want to want to cry. Um, But he never veered into activism or any kind of passionate um, response. He kept his cool at all times. And in fact, he told me, I asked him about it once. And he said that the only time he had ever cried over a case was when he actually got a not guilty verdict in a case that everyone said was unwinnable. And he went outside and like hid behind a tree and like, and cried tears of joy because he thought that the justice system was one of the most beautiful things on, on earth. So it was, it was, it was, um, I, I was just, I, I, I couldn't, I've never met anyone like him before. Yes. Yeah. He is what makes, well, he's part of what makes this story so unbelievable i mean it's 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 a true story but the characters all of a sudden you've got this terrible story and then you have this almost like a knight in shining armor except he's not he's a kind of down-to-earth kind of guy which is which is so at odds with everything but then we have the judge oh my goodness this is a it's just like a, a character out of dickens i mean he's just it's I'm going to, once again, I'm going to hand it over to you, Kathleen, because the judge is, I mean, can I say this? He's just horrible. (laughs) (laughs) He, so Judge Michael Boren, um, it's a very interesting backstory. I, he, he went to Ripon College in Ripon, Wisconsin, and that is the birthplace of the GOP. And he attends college in the late 60s oh, yeah. when when it's becoming very fashionable for college students to speak out against the Vietnam War. Yes. But the mainstream opinion is, is still that the war is a just war, a good war. At that time, you know, the New York Times had not yet come out with their big piece about Vietnam. And the Chicago Tribune was still toting, uh, you know, it was it was still carrying that party line that this was a good war. So it's not as if he was necessarily an iconoclast when he started writing editorials um, supporting the Vietnam War. But to me, what struck me is this is a person who does, who, <laughs> who is not trying to be cool. You know, this is, he was a, he was a nerd and he was comfortable being a nerd. Yeah. Uh, you can imagine what it took uh, during that time when, when all of these, you know, pretty girls are growing their hair long yeah. and and yeah. blowing bubbles on the campus grounds yes. and fighting uh, for the right to have boys in their dorm rooms, like the sort of like this the sort of I don't know sense of self or or whatever you want to call it that would would allow him to to just write these scathing scathing op eds taking people taking liberals to task and he. He grew, he went to Richard Nixon's inauguration. He flew out for it, you know, as a young young man. And um, fast forward fifty years, and he is sitting. He he is overseeing Morgan and Anise's case, and there's a ton of politics wrapped up in it. He's an elected judge 
in an ultra Republican county. And he's dealing with a case that's wrapped up in a lot of um, political discourse, adult crime, adult time, tough on crime laws, super predator laws. And it's also incredibly publicized. So he's on display with his with his voters. And he, um, yeah, he he did a lot of things throughout this case that I found shocking and that that no one in the area, no one in the Waukesha area seemed to find shocking. And um, he he's a guy who loves theater. He is on the board of the Milwaukee Rep. And he kind of got he kind of got into this as a theatrical event. He hired a hairdresser to do his mustache and and his hair before the proceedings. He wore colorful bow ties. Um, And he he was so hard on on Morgan in particular. And uh, because of him, she did not receive uh, medication for her early onset childhood schizophrenia for 19 months. And she was in a state of psychosis in jail that whole time. And the things that he would say during these hearings, um, it was setting aside some of like the, some of the anti-science politicized views about children in adult court, setting all of that aside. A lot of it was, he, he seemed confused at times. Um, you know, he got the, he, he would call it a murder. Sometimes he called her uh, Morgan Kaiser in the same hearing that he got the years switched and said 1914 with, you know, Kaiser Wilhelm. He, it, it, yes, there yes. were, there were moments where I felt like maybe he was in and out of time and a little bit confused. And, and that troubled me on a, on another level, you know, thinking about this person who probably should not be seeking reelection should probably retire and go watch his plays. Um, instead he was stubbornly sitting out his, uh, his his tenure as judge something we should and you sort of almost touched on it is that uh, the population in the area in the whole of the state across the country actually um were really very down on these two young ladies morgan in particular there wasn't a lot of sympathy not a lot of public sympathy apart from people that really did look into the case and, and discover a little bit more than the headlines that was incredibly distressing for both of the girls and for Bella and for Peyton and for all the families. Let's very quickly talk about the families because you spoke to them. Uh, they come across as being such, I mean, it's such that the father of Morgan is, is such a, a pitiful character. Uh, it's, it's a sad, sad story. Um, and you paint the picture so so well it starts off he's a bouncer in a club when you when we first get introduced to him and i'll let you take over just talk to me about the parents just just very quickly yeah sure so morgan's mom and dad met while working at a spy themed restaurant at in milwaukee where there was like a password and you know spy emblems on the wall and her mom had to do this whole like spy routine while she served people drinks she had to call them spies and there were spy teenies instead of martinis and matt morgan's dad was the bouncer he's a he's a very big man he's like six foot four 300 pounds and he was able to diffuse these fights between these nerds who came in and drank too much and you know uh morgan's mom was 20 years old she was beautiful uh she did not know it 
uh, she was from a very small town, um, Holstein, which is, you know, you might recognize it. It's a kind of cow. And, um, and yes, so they got together and um, became, and she became pregnant with Morgan when she was uh, 22. And um, they got married shortly after that because Matt's parents were Mormon and very religious and really wanted them to get married. I don't know that they would have gotten married otherwise. They would have right. probably just continued living together. And um, and yeah, so that's that's how they met. And Angie knew that Matt had schizophrenia and she would read books about it and wanted to be a supportive girlfriend. And um, and and then after they had Morgan, she went back and got a degree, a new degree and became a neuro uh neurodiagnostic uh, specialist in surgery theaters for brain and spine surgeries. So she would monitor um, a screen while that was going on. And she worked really long hours and Matt became a stay at home dad because uh, his, you know, his disability had schizophrenia made it difficult for him to have a nine to five. And so he became Morgan's full-time caretaker. Um, And then Anise's parents uh, Anissa's dad had two kids from a previous marriage with his high school sweetheart who was diagnosed in high school as having a, a very extreme health problem that was probably going to kill her. And um, he and then so he had those two kids. He married uh, Anissa's mom and they had her and her brother. And then, you know, fast forward to when she around the time she's meeting Morgan, her parents have divorced. It's been ugly they lived together for a year after they separated you can only imagine what that might have felt like living in that house with two separated parents um and and her mom worked as a forklift driver her dad worked at husco international um which is a big employer in the area and around the time that she met morgan and started planning this crime and their subsequent escape her half siblings mom did die and they were planning to move in with her dad so she was going to be facing even less attention than she was already getting as you know the middle child of of four and so they scheduled they scheduled uh Peyton's death for that same weekend so I sort of draw those parallels she wanted to escape for more than one reason um and uh Peyton Bella's parents so her her dad worked for a party planning uh, company called Exciting Events, and her mom worked in healthcare, different side of healthcare than Angie. Angie was sort of like in the trenches, and I and I'm pretty sure that uh, Peyton's mom was more on the administrative side. Nice, and they made nice. they made good money to together. Um, they were uh, Anissa's family and Morgan's family were you know getting by. Things were okay but they did live in a condo complex that was for lower income families. And um, Bella's parents were uh, comparatively wealthy. They owned a boat, they owned a motorcycle. They had sort of the accoutrements of, of Wisconsin uh, middle upper class living. And, um, and yeah, and these three families suddenly found themselves in the same courthouse hearing after hearing um, separated, you know, by an aisle. What we haven't got to, and I wish that we had more time, and I'm almost tempted to say that we should do another session, is that we haven't really got into details about mental health in America and as it pertains to these two young ladies and also the prison system, uh, incarceration, and how that pertains. Because the stories that you tell, um, 
it's too, it's, we don't have enough time to go into it right now, but the stories that you tell, which are true, are just shocking, are, are just so hard to read. It's so hard, and particularly when you're realizing that you're talking about children, you're talking about young girls, 12, 13. Just to, just to finish up here, Kathleen, what's the status right now of, of both of Anissa and, and Morgan? So Anissa has been released. She is living with her father. As far as I know, last I checked, she has to wear an ankle monitor. Yes. Um, Morgan is still at the Winnebago Mental Health Institute which is a forensic hospital, meaning that people convicted of, sorry, charged with violent crimes, but found not guilty by reason of insanity are yes. sent there. And so she remains there. She's currently petitioning for release, but that's, you know, that petition crosses Judge Boren's desk. It's not up to her doctors. Her doctors have been saying that she's ready to leave. They've been saying that for years and years. Um, but it's not up to them. It's not up to the hospitals, the forensic hospitals, whether these uh, patients get out. It's very different from prisons where, you know, the pr prisons get to decide whether people get parole. Uh, and Morgan is still there. And based on my research uh, on forensic patients and on how that works, and a lot of that has been done by Gabriel Mack for the New York Times. Um, he wrote a really a really, really great piece about it. But she, patients like her end up serving far longer sentences in hospitals than they would have served in prison. Yes, And I think it's very unlikely that she will ever get out. I very much enjoyed talking to you. I've certainly enjoyed your book. It's absolutely fascinating. I highly recommend it. Slender Man is the title. Online Obsession, Mental Illness, and the Violent Crime of Two Midwestern Girls. Kathleen Hale, thank you so much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to my guests, Robin Hunzinger and Kathleen Hale. The link... Robert mentioned is up at lifeelsewhere.co, as is the link to Kathleen Hale's book, Slender Man. Now, I do like to get your feedback, so send me your thoughts. My email address comes up in the closing credits. Till next time, please be well, be safe, and you know it makes sense. Be nice. Bye bye. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere. Created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Thank you.